Now entering Nerdist.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Writers talking writing can get pretty exciting. The talk can be enlightening. It's very really frightening. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Welcome to the television writing panel at Nerdist Industries at Meltdown Comics, an informal chat about television, writing, and the business of writing television. My name is Ben Blacker. I'm the uh, co-writer and co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour, thrillingadventurehour.com. And tonight we have four amazing panelists who I will introduce directly. Uh, First up is Jeff Greenstein. Jeff, yeah, you're right. Uh, Jeff did, has been in the business for uh, a while. He, he's done a lot of early work in sitcoms. He started out on, I believe, HBO's uh, Dream On is the first credited thing I saw. Anyway, yeah. Are you Dream On fans here? Yeah. Try watching it recent. Try watching it soon. Uh, it's, uh, it doesn't hold up. Uh, <laughs> Jeff, <laughs> Jeff, uh, Jeff and his, his writing, he'll tell you about it. Jeff and his writing partner, whose name is also Jeff, and I will tell you this uh, on a personal note, my writing partner, my name is Ben, my writing partner is also named Ben, every meeting we go to. Do you guys know the Jeffs? Have you heard of the Jeffs? Uh, It happens. So I imagine they got a lot of meetings that way, but they're massively successful. They worked on Friends for many years. Uh, They co-created the series Partners shortly after their Friends stint. And then uh, they broke off, and Jeff's first, uh, Jeff Greenstein's first solo act was as a writer on Will and Grace. Uh, And he was there for many, many years, uh, five, six, seven years, something like that, a long time. He'll tell you about it. Um, Since Will and Grace, he's added his talents to NBC's Parenthood. He recently co-wrote The Great State of Georgia, an ABC family show that was recently uh, picked up a series. And uh, Desperate Housewives, where he made his directorial debut. Please welcome again Jeff Greenstein. Hi, Jeff. Hello, Ben. Hi. Hi. Do we have any white people here tonight? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, go ahead. Thank you. Glad someone said it. Our next panelist uh, has a background, a long background in comedy, both in sketch and stand-up. And uh, she's originally from New York. She came out here and found work in, in sitcoms, uh, shows such as Love, Inc., um, Carpoolers, which had a lot of great comics on it. IMDb that show. I've never seen it, but it has a lot of great comics on it. Um, Blue Collar TV. She's currently a writer on Community, where on Community, uh, where she wrote um, Contemporary American Poultry, right? And your favorite episode, Modern Warfare, Emily Cutler. Keep it going for Emily Cutler. <laughs> Good hustle. Thanks. Hi. <laughs> Up next, uh, this gentleman, 
also got his start in comedy uh, and actually started writing in sitcoms. He wrote on Tom Arnold's Jackie Thomas show. He wrote, he's written animation. Uh, he wrote on the Pinky and the Brain show. Yeah. Right? Nerds. <laughs> Uh, then he transitioned to hour-long programming with Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Really, your fans? <laughs> you opened the door for this. Yes. <laughs> uh, he continued with Angel, with Lost, uh, where uh, he was the co-EP and then the EP of 24 from, uh, I believe, season 5 or day 5 to day 9, whenever it ended. Um, <laughs> He, uh, he also sings, and you may have seen him sing in the musical Buffy episode and in uh, Dr. Horrible and uh, in the Thrilling Adventure Hour. <laughs> David Fury. Yay. David, thank you. Finally, <laughs> our fourth panelist uh, has sort of a, a classic breaking in story. We're, we'll, we'll hear from all these guys how they broke in, but everybody's story is different, although there's a variation of it that pops up once in a while, and uh, she sort of had the story. She worked her way up from you know fetching coffee and that sort of thing to a writer's assistant to become a staff writer. Uh, she does have the twist, though, that she... Um, was selected for the Warner Brothers writing uh, workshop, writer's workshop, which is sort of a big deal, and, and she'll talk about that, I hope. Um, her first full-time writing job was on the show Supernatural, where she was for quite a spell. She's also written for Mad Men, and most recently on the series V, uh, Catherine Humphreys. Yay! Hi, you guys. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Uh, we thank started. You, thank you for the free water. You're welcome. <laughs> You're welcome. Did everybody get one? I have more back here if you finish it. Uh, Catherine, I'm going to start with you because I've already talked about it a little bit. Uh, let's tell everybody how you guys, each of you, broke into the business. Please tell your own story. Um, <laughs> Catherine. Tell David's. Please, please. We all want to talk to you about stories. It's gory. Uh, Catherine, let's start with you. How did you break in? How did you first get your first paying writing job? Um, well, it's, it's you know kind of like you were saying. I, I came out here, um, and I actually kind of wanted to do film. And I had a, a really good friend who was actually my RA in college who kind of after I had a couple jobs said, maybe you should try this TV thing. It's a lot more stable. And um, so I never really thought about it, and I ended up getting um, – I got a PA job on the show called Once and Again, and sort of immediately, which is an amazing show and, and an amazing first experience to have. And even though I was a PA, I, I got to do everything. I even had an experience once where I ended up shooting some footage for the season finale, because um, <laughs> it was just like a crazy group of people. And I went, we all were down on stage for the last like um, shots of the 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 um, season, and someone thought it would be funny to stick me in the de the, or the camera operator's chair and. Yeah, so it, that was a great first experience, and then I came back the next season as a writer's PA, um, which was great, but they didn't have a writer's room, so after that I sort of thought I need to move on and do something different, and at that point I just made a ton of contacts and ended up, oddly enough, working for Gillian Anderson for the last two seasons on The X-Files, which was kind of one of those, like, why not do this? And, you know, I was a huge fan of the show, and it actually cemented my... Um, 
it gave me the realization that TV was for me because I she had a lot of power at that point and I spent a lot of time dealing with the producers of the show and running interference and, and it was kind of like I love the fact that you're not just writing in, in like a bubble but you're on set and you're producing your own material and so then I had a, a bunch more jobs after that just doing various things um, and I wrote a script that got me into the Warner Brothers writing program which was it's totally been revamped now it's very different and I would encourage everyone to apply when I did it it was useful but not as useful as you wanted it to be. Um, I got lucky. I got a great mentor who helped me get a writer's assistant job on Supernatural. There was a producer on Supernatural who I'd known from X-Files who sort of encouraged me and, and worked together with me, and I wrote a freelance with him. And then didn't actually they, they didn't actually then bump me up the next year. They said, come back next year, and we'll give you a solo freelance, which was really disappointing. So I went back started to do a solo freelance, got a job offer elsewhere, and then all of a sudden it was like, oh, wait, we can staff you. So that's, that's how I did it. <laughs> during, just to back up a little bit, during the time when you were Jillian's assistant, or even before, were you writing? Were you creating your own stuff? The honest answer is no. I mean, I was sort of one of those people, and I know I'm turning bright red up here. I can't help it. Um, I do this in meetings, too. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> we all find it charming. Oh, thank Every you. single one here. Um, yeah. No, I sort of wanted to write without writing. I was one of those people. I mean, I started a spec script at one point that I went back two years later, and that actually became the spec that got me into Warner Brothers. But I spend a lot of time not writing, <laughs> you know, I, which is another reason TV is perfect for me because I love being in the room and I love contributing in that way. And then you go off and you have like a week or two to write a script. So you got to get it done. And I work pretty well under that, that time frame. And, and then you go back and you're in the room. I love breaking episodes. I love structuring. with, mm. I love bouncing ideas off of other people. So the hardest thing for me is, is writing my own material. And, and I'm actually working on a, a movie for a lifetime right now. And that's been like this huge struggle to actually make myself you know, it's it's due in a month, not in a week, and so that's a challenge. So, thanks, David. Same question. I I had to sleep with Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> Don't remind. I'm sorry. Me. Sorry. <laughs> I actually started writing. Uh, I started as a stand-up in New York, and uh, that was the first time I I ever had to write any material, and that led to me creating a sketch comedy group in New York that um, had some, it was called Brain Trust and it had some success and I came out to LA and again I was an actor, I was just looking to showcase my acting I, I, I came here with my comedy group and with this material I'd written to showcase me as next big sitcom star and all anyone wanted to know was who wrote it and I said well I did but wasn't I great in it <laughs> wouldn't, you, wouldn't, you, wouldn't you love to see me on TV and uh, they said, what else have you got? What, uh, you know, do you have any screenplays and tele teleplays or, or any kind of specs? And I did not. Um, at the time, I was living with my girlfriend, who uh, was a very prolific writer in her own right. And um, I set out to write my very first spec script, which was a spec Seinfeld. And um, my, my girlfriend said, you know, maybe we can do it together. And I said, please, I'm sorry. I appreciate it, but I, I'm a lone wolf. I, I, I really, I thank you anyway. And uh, as I continued to struggle, um, 
uh, she wrote about three or four specs of her own. Um, so finally, after a few months, I went, okay, look, all right, maybe let's try this writing together. And we wrote a spec, Seinfeld, and uh, I hate to say it because a lot of people are very prolific and write a lot of scripts before they get a break, but that, that one script got us an agent, um, Ari Emanuel. I don't know if you know who he is. Um, and, uh, and got us our first job offer, uh, which was on the Jackie Thomas show, um, which is a Roseanne and Tom Arnold thing. Um, I realized I would, if this career was going to take off, I would have to split my income with my writing partner. So I married her, um, and that way I can, I can get all the money. Um, um, and uh, that started me in the road to sitcoms. My writing partner's here, by the way. Uh, Ellen Hampton, uh, uh, please. Um, we, we, I spent a lot of years in sitcoms, um, and I did work with this man uh, without putting out. And... Um, uh, that that uh, that snowballed into other areas, including sketch show, House of Buggin', or animated show, Pinky and the Brain. We had a very eclectic career, and until uh, eventually led us to Buffy, and uh, that that was a transition into ours. Um, and they wanted to hire both of us after our first Buffy script, but my wife, then wife, uh, got offered a producing job on Mad About You, and said, "I'm out of here." Uh, partner's over. So uh, she went to Man About You, and I got to go to Buffy, and that was the beginning of my solo career. And it's going downhill since then. <laughs> Do you want to talk about that, uh, that move to Buffy? I know it's a longer story. But it's a good story. Are, are you up for it? Or we don't. Have to uh, talk? No, it's. Uh, I don't recall it being that long a story, so I'll pat it out. Um, I, you can I, add a musical number. Well, please. yes. No, the Buffy. The Buffy thing actually was at the time uh, we were writing uh, Pinky and the Brain, and um, we were Pinky and the Brain was going to be developed as a new primetime series. The WB was looking at it to be their Simpsons, and um, if you've seen Pinky and the Brain. Um, <laughs> You'll see what network thinking is all about, which is like, how is this going to be The Simpsons? Um, but we, 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 we wrote an episode where we gave Pinky and the Brain a child. They had a child together through a cloning mishap. And, we, and we, anyway, this was going nowhere. And we needed another opportunity. Our agent uh, said, well, we've got this. Uh, we had two meetings set up the same week. One was for a guaranteed smash hit sitcom on ABC. It was going to be sandwiched between Roseanne and Home Improvement, the number one, number two shows on the air at the time. And it was going to premiere in the fall, guaranteed 12 episodes. It's, it's going to be a monster hit. Or Buffy the Vampire Slayer, six episodes mid-season for something called the WB. Uh, and... Um, the strange thing was after Ellen and I had met with uh, both parties, after we met with Joss, uh, I knew we wanted to do Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, I said, I, I really think this, this is going to be special. Uh, our agent said, we're insane. Um, there's no way Buffy is going to be successful. This sitcom is cash in the bank, and it's going to be huge, and it's going to be, and what do you know about writing dramas and everything else? So... We very stupidly went to the sitcom, The Surefire Hit, 
which you all remember was called Life's Work. <laughs> we all have our fond memories in our favorite episodes. And at, so at the time, we, we fired the very powerful Ari Emanuel, who had been our agent at that point for many, many years, uh, because of that, uh, that move. And we, our, our new agents, the first thing we did say, was say to him, can, can we see Joss again? Can you please get us in to talk to Joss? Because we'd really like another crack at this. And Joss um, said, yeah. Um, and the thing that Joss hired us on was a pinky in the brain script. I mean, which is really interesting. He was interested in the comedy aspect, and he was interested in the, the, the more fantastic aspect of, of, of that script, rather than looking for other drama writers or experienced drama writers. He was looking for people who had a fun point of view and, and, uh, um, and a sense of comedy. And uh, that's what got him to offer us our first script there. And then I, this all coincides with what I told you earlier, how we veered off, my wife went to Man About You, and I went to Buffy. Was that the story you wanted me to tell? That was this exactly was, the okay, story. great. Thank you. Sorry. Emily, Thanks. you also have a performance background, right? I do. My, my story is, is sort of, can you hear me? My story is sort of similar uh, to David's in that I was a performer, and I was doing a, an improv show called The Dysfunctional Show that was kind of a takeoff on talk mm. shows. And from that, um, I was trying to launch my acting career, and then somebody saw it and said, you know, who's writing this? And they hired uh, me and one other person to do a pilot for Brandon Tartikoff's company, which was basically um, a send-up of the news. And that was kind of my first thing. And, and also from doing the, um, the show that I was doing, the improv show, I met Jason Alexander, who did a guest spot, and then I started writing a movie for him, and so that was another way to kind of make my way in. So if, if you are a performer, I think you have a real advantage, A, because you know the lines that you want to say and don't want to say, so it helps you in your writing. Um, but it's just a, a, another way in, another way to, to showcase your work that a lot of writers don't have. So if you're a performer, I think that's a really you know, good way to, to get in. And you've been staffed on a number of sitcoms I have. since all that. Did you have to I go have. around and take the meetings, or did you have this reputation as a performer and a writer at that point where um, it was a little bit easier? I kind of gave up the performance part. I, I was writing in my downtime as an actor, and I had a lot of downtime as an actor. So um, also the losing the 25 pounds to be an actress in this town was not so appealing after a while. So... Um, my first sitcom, what was the first show that I worked on? I've already blocked it out of my mind. I, I wrote on a show, um, I think I got hired off uh, a Frasier spec. I wrote a Frasier spec and handed it off to a friend of mine who was a writer, and he handed it off to an agent. And then I just started doing the rounds and taking the meetings and meeting with people and got my first jobs that way. So you didn't have an agent when you were doing the Tartikoff show? I did not. Interesting. I did not. The, the way that I got an agent was when I wrote this uh, feature for, for Jason Alexander, when I say for him, I don't mean he was paying me to. I had kind of discussed it with him and said, hey, I'm writing a feature for you. And he said, okay. Um, and didn't, didn't do it and wasn't that interested. But, um, but because I wrote it, it was, it was a fun script, and I, I had handed it off to a producer, and they handed it off to an agent. So that's how I got my first agent. I was hip-pocketed, which if you don't know what that means, it means an agent is kind of representing you. They're sort of representing one piece of work you have or sort of keeping you in the back of their stable of professional writers in the hopes that you'll break out. So they're not actually signing you. They're just kind of 
hanging out for a while, seeing if you make a lot of money right. for them. Without the commitment. Right. Yeah. right. For them. Right. Uh, well, and we'll talk a little bit more about uh, representation once we, um, once we move on here. Uh, Jeff, yes. same question, yes, breaking in. How'd you get involved? <laughs> I had a very peculiar college career, um, <laughs> which took me from uh, the College of Engineering at Tufts University through computer science, through art history, to film, to dance. Uh, so uh, when I graduated, I moved out here with an eye toward becoming a film director. Um, and I had a job uh, on an AFI film that, uh, that a friend of a friend of a professor of mine had lined up for me. Um, Robert Wise, who was running the AFI at the time, killed that project. And so I found myself stranded out here with about $85 in the bank. Uh, and so I started... Uh, working as a word processor, drawing on my deep computer knowledge, and I lured uh, my college friend Jeff Strauss out here, and we began writing screenplays together while we were waiting for our kick-ass directing careers to start. Um, and uh, we wrote two just absolutely excruciatingly bad uh, spec screenplays, um, one of which uh, was about American, an American sumo wrestler, uh, just to give you an idea of the level of uh, discourse. Um, sounds great. Sounds it was great. great. Uh, sounds awesome. Hey, 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 that's mine. That one's mine. Um, uh, we were working a variety of kind of bad temp jobs. Uh, he was selling cars for a while. Uh, I had, in addition to the word pressing, I had a particularly bad job counting underwear returns at Bullock's Wilshire. Um, um, I don't recommend that. Uh, but anyway, but through a series of circumstances, uh, I was, uh, uh, my girlfriend at the time was working as a, uh, a placement agency, at a, a placement counselor at a temp agency, and she got Strauss a job, uh, at ABC, uh, and he was working as uh, answering phones for the woman who ran the comedy department at ABC. And as we were writing the 20th draft of the crappy sumo wrestling script, all these little scripts were going across his desk for shows like uh, Moonlighting and uh, Perfect Strangers and Roseanne and The Wonder Years, and we had a revelation which was that they were shorter. Uh, and so we decided to start writing uh, spec uh, half hours of our own. And also because Jeff had this phone relationship with a lot of agents, we kind of knew who the agents were and who they were not, who, were, who was nice, and one of them uh, took us on. We, we wrote a, an, I, I did not get hired off my first spec script, I got hired I think mm -hmm. off my 10th. Um, but uh, we, then we proceeded to freelance, uh, which is not something that's done so much anymore, but at the time you could pick up one episode of an ongoing sitcom. We did a, an episode of The Charmings, anybody? Oh, uh, we did an episode of Charles in Charge, <laughs> uh, Mr. Belvedere. <laughs> Um, but it was, uh, it, was, um, it was off a spec Murphy Brown that we got hired for um, Dream On, um, which at the time was, uh, you know, this was long before the Larry Sanders show and long before cable was really in heavy into the original programming business. So uh, it was actually our agent's assistant who booked the meeting. Our agent was on a, on a golf vacation at the time. Um, and we went in. We, the meeting was at an apartment building on Riverside Drive in North Hollywood. And I thought, is this, it was like, this is porn that we're doing. Um, which, if any of you have seen Dream On, it was, was not far from the truth. But uh, the, the creators of the show were Marta Kaufman and David Crane, who had just moved out from New York, and we had this instant rapport with them. And uh, we had a similar circumstance to what David described, because at the time we were also being recruited by a highly rated and very successful uh, Whit Thomas show called Empty Nest. And uh, that would have been Sirius Bank and 24 on the air, and uh, you know it would run and run and run. But we had the same thing. We loved these guys. 
And we just thought, this is, it's probably not going to work out. The money was terrible, but we thought these are two people that we'll have a lot of fun with. Um, and uh, so I had not studied writing, by the way, just as a, as a footnote for those of you. Uh, we learned everything we learned by watching TV and writing stuff. I didn't have a performing background or a screenwriting background or You were a dancer, though. I was a dancer. Um, <laughs> Which is which I you know, I learned a lot about sitcom structure from, uh, <laughs> um, but uh, so I, everything that I learned I learned during those five seasons on Dream On and we we had the wonderful uh, experience of going from being baby writers on that show to running it and uh, learned an enormous amount in the process and uh, Martin and David took us with them to Friends and uh, that was of course like being on a rocket ship um, taking a show from nowhere to number one in eight months and so. Uh, that was too much pressure for my partner and me. Uh, we did create one fairly successful and well-regarded show called Partners that aired on the Fox Network for one year. Uh, but then we split up, and I went on to Will and & Grace and uh, have not really stopped working since then. I did the whole – I'm getting ahead of this. That's right, uh, I did uh, virtually the whole ride of Will & Grace, starting with episode four through the uh, consulting on the seventh season of the show and quit. And then, uh, and then I was recruited for Desperate Housewives, and I had no hour experience whatsoever. But Mark Cherry knew me, being a half, being also being a half hour writer, and recruited me to work on that show. And I did seasons three, four, five, and quit. Um, and then worked on Parenthood, and uh, then quit. And uh, Housewives lured me back for the year that I'm finishing now. So I've had an unbelievable ride. Uh, a lot of people have been extraordinarily nice to me. Can I borrow some money? Huh? Can I borrow some money? I made those for you. <laughs> I don't know what I was going to ask. No, okay. Um, I want to. Here's a question raised by by that story, and I don't know. Maybe some of some of you guys might be able to address this as well. But I'll start with Jeff. Uh, why leave a massively successful show like successful show like Friends or like Desperate Housewives? Well, you know, the Friends story is a little complicated, but the, the short answer, we only did one season of Friends. We only did the first year. Um, we were actually under contract to another studio at the time that Friends happened. We were, uh, let me see if I can shorthand this as much as possible. We were under contract to Universal because Universal produced Dream On, and they had a development deal with us. And our agent, through dogged persistence, made this deal we had helped. We had done punch up on the pilot of Friends. I actually have one great joke in the Friends pilot. Um, and... Uh, Oh, really? I No, I've overhyped it. We'll do it later. Um, no, 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 I'll tell you what it is. Uh, the joke is, I just realized this, I actually thought of it and I realized it's pretty good. Um, there's a joke in the, there's a joke in the, I punch up, by the way, for those of you who don't know, when you produce a pilot, you rally some of your sitcom writer friends to help you with the production week and to help you with the rewrites and the polishing that uh, you would typically do with the staff on a running show. You get your buddies to do it and typically at the end of the five or six days you buy them an iPod. Um, an iPod? I've gotten like a piece of pizza. <laughs> Boy, I'm in the wrong room. Yeah, I, I worked on Friends. Um, uh, Good point. Anyway, uh, so uh, season I made one these for you. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, uh, I'm sorry. This is a, such a long digression. I don't want to take time away. We. I, I got one great joke in the. This pilot. is your time. The joke is that. Um, 
Uh, Rachel is talking about starting all over again and how difficult it's going to be for her. And Phoebe says, I know exactly what you mean. And she proceeds to tell this horrible story about how, like, after her mother committed suicide, she started dating this guy. And he, you know, he got heavily heavy into crack. And then she met some dudes at Port Authority who were kind of into some heavy <laughs> shit. And she got it up. And she tells this absolutely wrenching, horrible story that and everyone is struck silent. And then there's a beat, and Ross leans over to Rachel and goes, uh, the word you're looking for is anyway. <laughs> anyway, that was the joke. Um, uh, anyway, um, we, uh, we had helped out on the pilot, and we had so much fun working with Marta and David again that they were like, please, oh, please, can we have you work on this show? So our agent had Universal loan us to Friends for one year only with the proviso that during that year we wrote a pilot. Mm. And so Partners was the pilot that was unabashedly about us. Uh, it was about my relationship with my writing partner and how much it was like a marriage and how our lives began to change when one of us actually started, you know, got engaged to some, a woman. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so uh, Partners was the pilot we worked while, we wrote all, over Christmas break while we were on Friends, and it got picked up, and we went straight to there. But to answer your question... I don't remember what it um, was. I, do, <laughs> I actually was, was uh, uh, talking to the remainder of the panel about this right before. I do quit things a lot. I get impatient. Uh, I, I'm I have the luxury of being able to gov be governed entirely by what excites me and what I find creatively satisfying at this point in my career, uh, which, for which I thank uh, God, NBC, ABC, every day, okay? Um, uh, so I have, I look for creative satisfaction and where people are nice. And uh, I don't stay any place where I can't have both those things. Wow. And so, I know. Wow. It's a real luxury. And, uh, and so I do, and I, I get restless. You know, there's one, working in television is wonderful because you get to unfold stories over long periods of time. You get to write the big Russian novel of the characters' lives. But, you know, after seven years on Will and Grace, I felt I don't have any more to give to these people. And so I had to leave before, you know, you leave before you get pushed or before mm -hmm. you get stale or before you can't stand to go to work in the morning. And so I've always used that as a guiding principle in my career. And I think if I have a cool-ass resume, it's because I do tend to quit upward, <laughs> for better or worse. Interesting. I, I, I'd like to uh, kind of open up to all of you guys this idea of exploring the vast Russian novel of a character's lives. Because each of you, and we talked about this a little bit before, have worked on other people's shows. Uh, and we'll talk about stuff you've developed on your own in a minute. But in this experience of really writing someone else's creation, do you get the creative outlet that you're looking for from writing? Are you getting to tell a personal story? Or does that not matter to you? Uh, whoever, anyone who wants to jump in, I'm, I'll listen to. I guess it's on me then. <laughs> uh, the great thing about working uh, within uh, the parameters of someone else's ideas, uh, the playground that somebody creates, whether it's Joss Whedon or um, uh, Joel Surnow of 24 or, or, or JJ and, and Damon. I mean, these are my experiences. Um, uh, the, but the beauty of it is they've created the playground. And there are no, uh, there's, there's no limit to what you can write as long as you stay, with, stay within the parameters of the world they've created. And I think it's actually very freeing. Because what you find is that uh, when you're developing your own material and you have every option in the world, you can become overwhelmed with the fact it can be anything. You can change, you know, the tone, 
you know, the character, should it be three brothers or two brothers? Should it be a sister instead of a mother? There's all sorts of things you can make yourself crazy. But to have something, to have a world that's created for you and then be told, now do anything you want to with it, which is the freedom that certainly Joss gave all the writers on, on Buffy and Angel, um, it was wonderful. It was freeing. And it, we weren't bogged down with minutia. We, we, we knew the rules of the world we were playing in. And we knew how it should sound. We knew. And at the same time, we could infuse our own points of view, our own voices. I mean, I like to think that when I'm writing certain characters, they're, they're channeling my voice. It's not me imitating Joss's voice or somebody else's voice. It's my voice being being channeled through these characters he's created, and um, and therefore, like I say, because of the the rules set up, you 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 it frees up your imagination to think to go. Now I know what to break, what rules to break, or now I know what uh, how to stretch this universe because the universe has already been created for you, and and that is something I I. I will always love to do. I'll always love to play in someone else's playground. Have you, uh, if I may ask a question, have you been on a, on a show or had an experience where the playground that's been created for you is not so exciting? The voice who's created the show is not that brilliant. <laughs> the characters are not so... So it's more difficult when you say, you, you're talking about people who've created this incredible playground for you. Have you ever been where the playground was not so great? Yes, Emily, I have. Because <laughs> I have a lot. I, I'm sure you have more stories than I do on that. You're making and and rightly so. For, let's 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 take 24 for instance. 24 was a wonderful job and a wonderful opportunity, and a show I'm very proud of. But by the same token, it's a show that was always the same tone. There was always a tone of of constant urgency and gravitas. Kiefer's favorite word. And, um, and, and therefore, it became very difficult. When I first got there, I did try to infuse a little bit more of me into the script. I tried uh, to work in some humor. Mm-hmm. And the response I got was, that's very funny. We don't do that here. Mm-hmm. And um, so I had to pull back. There is that constraint. But by the same token, in that particular case, it wasn't as rewarding but still having, having those rules um, inflicted upon me, if that's the right word, um, um, it still allowed me to create within those boundaries and those walls. And even if it was more confining, um, it was rewarding when I could find something good. Mm-hmm. You know? I, 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 I would agree with David that the, the best professional experiences I have had is where I'm able to find a point of intersection between what the show is and what I, can, what I bring to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been very fortunate, particularly on Dream On, on Friends, on Will and & Grace, and to an extent on Desperate Housewives, even though I started on the third season of the show, to help invent what the show is. Um, and I helped mm. when I started on Will and Grace I didn't know what an oxygen facial was or a Manolo Blahnik or half the show was completely impenetrable to me but once I learned the vernacular of the show I came to understand that it was about a theme which is very dear to me and which has run through a lot of my work which is about how close friendships are sim- simultaneously the greatest blessing and the greatest curse that a person can endure um, and so I found a, a point of intersection and as a result it was an extraordinarily uh, 
uh, creatively satisfying place to work. I'll say one other thing, though. There's, I've run shows. I have run other people's shows. I've run my own shows, and I've worked as a, as a drone on other people's creations. There is something very freeing about not having to be the showrunner. Um, it's a, an enormous privilege not to have to talk to the network every day. Uh, it's an enormous privilege not to be responsible for the care and feeding of the actors every day. Um, your job is much more focused on the writing, uh, the storytelling, uh, and the crafting of scripts, and I enjoy that a lot. It's my favorite part of the job. I like all those other things, but I feel everything flows from being a writer for me, and I like my nights and weekends, and so it's, it's freeing to me in a way not to be responsible for all that stuff. Uh, Catherine, you, you've worked on some very creator-driven shows. Uh, has this been your experience as well? Have you found that intersection between the pers- personal and uh, someone else's vision? Yeah, I mean, I... I First of all, I want to figure out how to have the careers that David and Jeff had. Um, we all do. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's yeah that that is one of the most it can be one of the more frustrating things. Um, you know, I'm going to digress a little bit, but I'm sure a lot of you guys, if you you're trying to break into writing, and the advice now is write a pilot. I think probably certainly when Jeff and, and David broke in, you wrote specs. And I sort of came up right when that was shifting. And so I wrote specs, and I got pretty good at writing specs because everything that David was saying, like, completely agree with you. The, the world is laid out, and if it's an interesting world, and, and when you're writing specs, you can pick any world that you want to write in. So, you know, um, I could write a Buffy if I wanted to. I could write a Six Feet Under if I wanted Like, the shows that I loved, I could write. And could do whatever I wanted to within that world, which, hello, that's the first door that shuts when you actually get on a staff. Because <laughs> you're like, oh, my God, I have so many ideas. And, you know, it differs from show to show, but on some shows there are parameters that you wish weren't there. Um, you know, and certainly for me, one of the, the things that happened was then it was kind of like the advice was you need to start writing pilots. And I was, I was really resistant to that because I said, I don't want to run my own show. I just want to work in this playground you know, um, want to find a place where I fit and I can bring something to the show. Um, and, and I was on Supernatural for a total of four years. Um, and the funny thing is, actually, the first year I was a writer's assistant, and that was when it was like, figure out this show. What did this pilot mean? What, what are the, what's the mythology? And that was actually probably in some ways my the most... I was the most creatively involved with the overall picture because once that show settled into a rhythm and it works great for that show, but there's no writer's room, you sit alone in an office and you figure out your episodes and there's a formula and it works and you don't really, with the exception of a friend of ours, Ben Edlund, who is a brilliant, brilliant writer and could go outside that box, that was sort of where you stayed. So sometimes I would find episodes where... I got to bring myself in a little bit more, or I got to, to, to figure out a way in a show called Supernatural to write about an emotional subject that was dear to me, or, you know, that shouldn't really have women in it. So there was a lot of constraints that were frustrating to me, but I did have a few episodes that were really, um, and then, but I think the, the good part of that was by the end of that, towards the end of that, I was so frustrated with not getting to fully express what I wanted to express that I finally faced all the things David was talking about, of sitting down, oh my God, I can do anything, what am I going to do? And um, one of my friends who, who had been on Supernatural and also was a little more constrained than she wanted to be had written a, a very personal pilot about sort of a life experience she had that nobody else had had. And she got on True Blood um, from that pilot. And so she said to me, do that. You know, write the thing that no one else can, and I'm, you, I'm sure you've all heard this advice, and I probably had before, but it didn't resonate with me until I saw a friend write a pilot and 
get on a show she was really excited to be on. So I wrote a pilot. Um, I grew up in the South. I grew up as a Christian fundamentalist, and I wrote a pilot about that. And that got me Mad Men. So, you know, it's the push and pull. And then I will say Mad Men, there's no rules on that show. There's no formula. Every week it's different. And one of the great things that happens on that show is, and obviously, I mean, the process, everything goes through a process, but certainly at the beginning it's like, what do you want these characters to do? You know, that show you don't write to act breaks. You don't write to any sort of formula. You don't write to a happy ending. There's always scenes where no one's talking. I mean, it's just, it, that was so incredibly freeing. And now sometimes I fear I will spend the rest of my career trying to get back to a place like that. Um, but that was my long-winded answer. That's a good Great. answer. Uh, Emily, the same question. You, you were, you're in Community now, which, you know, Harmon gets a lot of credit as the voice of the show. Do you have a voice he on the show? He does. He's found... Um, <laughs> he's found a lot of writers that are like-minded. All of us love the same stuff. Um, we, we love his voice. And, and the show is also freeing in the way that you, you never know what each episode is going to be. So uh, the tone changes. The, what we keep the same are the characters. Um, and we keep developing them, but I, I, I love his voice, so I definitely bring a lot of me to it. Um, but we have a good a good captain, you know, leading the ship, and we are all contributing. And and his voice is definitely a big big part of the show. But since we love it, it's great to be there. You is know, it? you don't you don't always get that opportunity. A lot of time, the person st- is, uh, leading the ship um, is not not so clear in what his or her vision is. So you find yourself scrambling to accommodate um, a voice that is not fully crystallized, which is difficult. Can you name any shows in which that was the case? (laughs) Yes, I can, and I'm not going to. But yes, I can. These mics aren't on. I like when there's a strong voice on the show. If it's not my show, I would like to be the strong voice sometimes, but it's nice to work for someone who has a real vision and has a real unique voice, and you, you definitely don't get that all the time in television. So, Is there an episode either of Community or of something else you've worked on that you can point to and say, yes, that's me in it? Oddly enough, I, I wrote on a show that nobody has seen called Good Girls Don't, which was on Oxygen. And has anybody seen that show? There oh, you go. The, the one. Liar. Um, oh. And I, uh, oh, it's you, of course. Um, I, and you know, my husband's here, and he didn't even apply, so That just goes to show. Um, but that was a show, it was a very unusual room because it was all women. Um, occasionally we'd have a male writer come in and do a couple of days on the show, but I'd never been on a show that was all women. And it was a really fun room, and the show was really weird, and the characters were strange, and we didn't have a lot of boundaries, and we knew at any minute the show would be canceled, so we just did what we wanted to do, and it was, it was great. And as for community, I mean, one of the compliments that I will pay to, to the staff there is I cannot just pick one episode. There are so many different episodes that I like for different reasons that I wouldn't say that I have one that's my favorite which is good that's a a good thing I think absolutely Uh, David the same question is there something you've worked on playing in someone else's playground that you can say this is my point of view in here honestly honestly with again to go back to Buffy and Angel that was a very special as Emily these people don't want to hear about Buffy and Angel (laughs) I, I apologize I won't bring it up again um that was a very unique experience, and it's one that I am grateful for in that I, 
at least I'd say at least half the episodes um, were episodes that I I generated from a p- point of view or from or I was able to bring a lot of myself into what uh, you know into what the episode was. We had a lot of freedom. We had a lot of freedom on both shows to to do that. Um, nothing was dictated to us. It was more it was more shape we sh- we shape it and. Uh, and and Joss or Marty or David Greenwell would comment on it, and uh, um, so uh, that was a unique experience. And in, in during those years, I got to see a lot of uh, have a lot of points of view. The the first thing I did for Buffy uh, that I actually did with uh, my wife was an episode called "Go Fish," which we had to do. Mm-hmm. Now understand the show had this is in its second season, and it it had become developed into a very serialized, or the mythology had deepened greatly. This is the season for those if any of you know Buffy, um, <laughs> where Angel uh, loses his soul, and uh, you know after that he sleeps with Buffy, and there's some just brilliant brilliant episodes in that season. We pitched Go Fish before that season began. <laughs> Which was this lark of, hey, what if a swim team starts turning into monsters? Um, so by the time we actually, and then Joss went, great, love it. It's all about jock politics and, you know, it was all this stuff that we, you know, and I thought this will be fun. And I had been inspired by Creature from the Black Lagoon. I had been inspired by this an H.P. Lovecraft story called uh, Shadow Over Innsmouth. If you've ever read that, but it's about people turning into these horrible fish-like creatures. So I, I imagine this great epic. Um, at any rate, uh, by the time we got around to doing it, the sea, the Buffy had developed into the most sophisticated and emotionally rich show on television, in my humble opinion. And we had the fish story. Um, and, uh, you know, so for, for everything we tried to infuse in it, and I think we had some pretty clever things, and we had some fun, fun with it, but because it was developed outside the purview of, of Joss and the others as they were developing this great season, it, it did sort of stand apart, but at the, by the same token, it was everything I wanted to do with the episode, the, the, everything that we wanted to do with the episode. And, um, and I, think, I think with a good show creator, they do give you a certain amount of freedom. They want your ideas. They want you to make the show better. They hired you to be creative and give them ideas and, and move the show in different directions. And they're steering it, but you're definitely the force behind that. So it, that's a really good feeling. Uh, Catherine, same, same question. Uh, you talk about your experience on Mad Men, uh, but is there something you can point to that you've written that you say, yes, this is my personal point of view? I think, I mean, my career is much newer than everyone else here, and, and I, I... We know you're young. <laughs> okay. Yes. So young. Um, but That's when writers are best. I don't know if you guys know. <laughs> They're super young. I mean, I think I, I feel like I've had, I've had like snippets of that. I've had, um, and oddly enough, on Mad Men a little bit, I mean, the first episode that I wrote, which is not the best episode of the show by far, it was kind of a, that show picks up steam as the season goes along, but because it was an earlier episode, things aren't crazy and frantic yet, and you, I had time to do two passes, and there was a Peggy storyline that was just, it was, I got the storyline and I got her as a character, and, and so... I mean, I haven't quite yet had the experience of, of having a whole episode where I really got to do what I wanted, but in that, it was kind of like, that's my favorite storyline, and that one, 
didn't get that rewritten and sort of remained me, you know, and I had experiences like that on um, Supernatural too, where it was like, you know, you, you got to put in a guest character that, that you really loved and, and remained the character that you wrote. And, um, and then I guess also for me, like I said, I love being in the room and, and Mad Men, I think a, a place where the staff doesn't get enough credit is um, the, the breaking of the season. I mean, the room is an, the, I was on third season and it was an incredible, incredible room. I was awed every day to go in and be around those people. And I, so much of what's in that show came out of that room. And, and like with the finale, for example, that season, which was a brilliant episode, I, Matt did such a great job writing it. I could never touch what he did in terms of writing it, but there was a lot of stuff in there that I contributed to along with, with the room and certain parts of the room of figuring out. It was, it was sort of the episode where they, they break from Sterling Cooper and they, they figure out how to get out of their contract. We spent months trying to figure out how to get them out of their contracts. You know, it was like, oh, we'll make Don sign a contract and then what do we do? And, you know, it's sort of like remembering the day when four of us came up with the idea and, and seeing it. So that's the kind of thing where even though someone else wrote it and wrote it brilliantly, at least you're like, I always can know that I was a part of doing stuff like that. And in comedy, so. too, you'll see a joke. Like Jeff was pointing out, you know, I love to craft a, craft a joke on the page. And when it's in a show and it's your joke, you may not have written the episode and no one may associate you with it, but you know that you had that one joke in there. Right. Or two. I get more than one. <laughs> uh, let's talk. You know, oh. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to answer your question, but if you want to do something else, go ahead. Well, I thought we talked about partners. Is that enough? Let me do let me do your question because I have a good answer. All right, fine, <laughs> but keep it brief. No, I was because I've been formulating. No, I mean you were. T- I mean it's interesting because I think uh, uh, you know I have certainly had the opportunity over the years to infuse lots of my own experiences uh, into the shows I've worked on. Um, and the story of my engagement to my wife and how I have ultimately got her to say yes has given me five separate episodes of television comedy. Um, <clears throat> um, but the, it's interesting because the episode that I'm actually proudest of uh, the, was the flashback episode of Will and Grace, uh, where we flashback to 1985 to when Will and Grace were dating and we see him come out to her. And I'm proud because it never happened to me. Um, and I had to do an extraordinary amount of research talking to lots of my friends who had been on both sides of that scene. Uh, you know, the girl whose boyfriend explained to her that he's gay, the guy who had to explain it to the girlfriend. I did a lot of legwork and heard a lot of stories so that I could write it with some emotional authenticity. And and all through the process, I kept going back to Max and David, the creators of the show, and saying, you sure you don't want to write this one, please? Please take it away from me. Um, because I knew it was going to be hard, and I knew that it was going to, that, you know, we're fiddling around with the foundation of the series. But they kept saying... You know, they had they had the faith in me and the confidence in me uh, to let me ride it all the way through, and I'm so grateful for that. And it turned out to be, I'm so proud of my association with that episode because I think we did it right, and uh, we got a lot of love for doing that episode correctly. It was four years in the making. I mean, we started talking about it during the first season of the show and didn't make it until season four. And so I'm really proud of that, but it, but it was because we all worked very hard to make that uh, as good as it was. Okay, sorry. No, that's great. And it actually gives me a segue to a different question. Uh, was that the most difficult thing you've had to write? Oh, no. No, it's not. Pilots are much harder, which is interesting because, you know, when Catherine's talking about the, the trend toward making um, 
young writers write pilots, they're the worst thing. I mean, I, I, they're, so they're horrible. They're, they're so horrible. Hard. And I think, listen, I would, I mean, I feel, unfortunately, I, I was one of the progenitors of that trend because I said to agents at a certain point when I was staffing a show, I cannot read another Frasier. I cannot read one. So send me a play or a New Yorker cartoon or anything, <laughs> but I won't open a page and say, see, interior Connor household day. I just can't do it again. Um, uh, so I love reading original material, but pilots are hard. And uh, um, I wrote um, – uh, that was a very hard script to write, but I wrote a pilot last year, which I hope still to get made, um, which was um, about two female detectives. And it was about the life of women who work in law enforcement, but it has nothing to do with the business of catching criminals. It's all about their personal lives. And it was really hard for me because, again, I had to do a lot of legwork and a lot of research and try and put myself inside, inside the head of somebody who does that. Um, and it was my first hour pilot, and hour pilots are even harder than half hours because you're setting not just the tone of the series, the storyline, the way the characters talk, but you're setting the visual style with the way that you write it. And so it was excruciating. I mean, there was a point... This is going to sound awfully girly, but I've revealed everything else. There was a point where I was on my way to the little writer shack where I write, which is behind our house. And I was standing on the path crying. <laughs> and my wife was like, it's okay. Just go in. It'll happen. Even if you only write a page today, it's all right. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. But I cried like a schoolgirl in the woods behind our house. Where, where were you in the process of writing this? I was on page nine. Breakdown? Which is where you are. That's where I always have my breakdown. That's, in, I, that's industry standard. No, no, no. I, I, I spend, in, in, on any given script, I spend 90% of the time on pages 1 through 9, and the other 90% on pages, <laughs> on pages 10 through 50. Always. Always. Oh, getting started. It's the worst. So, so how did you get through? I just motored through it. I just fucking motored through did it. Did you write? I just, yeah. I just, did you write a lot of garbage? Yeah, you know, and I, I mean, we all know this, right? A lot of us in this room have been through this, the vomit pass, you know, where you're just trying to get words on paper, just keep the thing moving, and oh, my God. Um, and I did, and, you know, and I never look back. Just keep moving, keep moving forward and moving forward and trying to put words on paper. It's and st- hard, though. Yeah. Also, when you've written a bad scene or in comedy, when you do, you don't have your first really good joke it's hard to move oh. on. It's hard to just vomit it and let it lie there yeah. and move on to the next scene and go back. I mean, so I hope this is gratifying in a way because I've been doing this for almost 25 years. I've written hundreds upon hundreds of episodes of television for really, really cool shows. I suffer every freaking word. <laughs> I still do. It's still hard. I still hate it, by the way. I don't enjoy the process. Some people do. I read this interview in the Believer magazine, 826, um, uh, with Cormac McCarthy, and he said, my idea of heaven is a remote mountain cabin and a typewriter and a sheet of black pa- a blank paper. And I just thought, you fucking asshole. <laughs> Emily, is there something you can point to that where you've been stuck or you can't move on uh, and how you got through that? Oh, God, everything all the time. Um, I, I feel like I get stuck and I'm convinced I can't do it and I have a panic attack and then I get a good night's sleep and you wake up in the morning it's making your head fresh. Are you identifying with this? Now? I mean, constant, I mean, I have panic attacks all the time. I can't do it. This is terrible. Why am I in this business? It just spirals out of control. But 
just jogging your your perspective, taking a walk or hanging out mm. with your friends or uh, sitting in a different place or giving yourself a break and taking the pressure off if you can seems to help me a lot. That's how I push through. And just, just knowing I have to. That's why it's good for me to work in television because I think Catherine was saying I am not a self-disciplined person. It's very hard when I'm working on a pilot and I'm, I'm my own boss. I give myself lots of breaks and I don't do it and I procrastinate. But when you're on a TV show that is going to be shot and you have that many people waiting for your script and you have to write it, for some reason I work well mm. under that pressure. And I hate that pressure. I hate everybody associated with it. I want to kill myself, but I can do it. I yeah. don't know why that is. If you leave me alone and say, come up with a great feature and just take a couple months and write it, you will find me you know, having coffee with friends and just not doing any of it. So. My house will be very, very clean. My garden will be oh, planted. Oh. Um, every bill will be organized. Yes. Yeah, I'm a My bad husband will come in and say, me. you're cleaning the kitchen. So clearly you have writing to do because <laughs> yeah. this would never be happening. I bake like I've never baked yeah. <laughs> when we have scripts to do. <laughs> cookies came out well. Uh, David, same, same question. Have you had this experience? What's the most difficult thing? No, does it all, all come very easily? I've never had this you? experience at all. Writing. <laughs> it just flows uh, out of you. I it imagine. does. Um, I will say that the, the 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 best advice that I've ever read on the subject of writing was in a book. Uh, I mentioned it in other things. It's called um, Bird by Bird. It's by a writer named Anne Lamott. And she what she does is. Um, she sort of crystallizes, and this isn't necessarily the best thing to do with a television show where you have a very definite deadline, but maybe it is because it, it, sometimes what happens is you freeze. And the, the general idea behind her philosophy is to just set these um, – I'll tell you what bird by bird means. It, it refers to um, uh, her brother when, when they were kids – had uh, a report to do for two weeks on birds of North America. And, of course, it's the Sunday before it's due, and he hasn't started it yet. Uh, two weeks have gone by. And the father, who was a writer, their father, who was a writer, is working with the son, trying to help him get through the report. And the son was freaking out. I can't do it all. I can't do it. It's just too big. It's just this. And the father just says, bird by bird. The idea being, all you're going to do is focus on one bird right now one bird don't think about what else you have to do just do that bird and that freed him up to be able to just okay all i'm doing is this one bird for writing for any time that you feel and i I, i'm joking of course writing is is hell to me um (laughs) the the greatest thing you do is just set yourself even if it's just a paragraph even if it's just half a page of dialogue that's your goal. That's the only goal you'll have to do. If more than that is going to freak you out, then you shouldn't do more than that. Set yourself certain limits for saying, I'm going to write, this is what I'm going to write. And I'm going to make it, and it's going to be, and it's going to be crap. It's going to be terrible, terrible. And you have to just get used to the fact it's going to be terrible, but you're going to have it down on paper. And you just have to do that bird by bird. You just have to find those little things of, I know what I want to say, I know what this person, I want them to say, and let me just have them say that. It could be, your bird could be five pages for the day or a scene, an entire scene. But whatever it is, just set a goal. And it could be a very tiny, tiny, tiny goal. But as long as you succeed in fulfilling it, it'll keep you writing. It'll keep you moving forward. And I think that's the biggest problem that we have as writers 
is we can just get locked up and just go, I don't know how. I mean, some of us can motor through. I mean, Jeff, is he's an animal. But <laughs> others, like myself, I can get frozen in place. And the first, if we're talking about an actual experience, the thing when I went to 24, when I had been on uh, other shows, we did outlines. We did eight-page, 10-page, 14-page outlines before we wrote a script. On 24, we had a general idea. Hey, what if Jack kidnaps the Pope? All right, you go write that one. <laughs> and there was no outline. There was no discussion. I'd say, really? It's like, okay, well, I, what do you think about it? I don't know, just I don't know, figure it out, figure it out. And so that's, that's how... That's how so I, I froze. I, I had that experience of, I, I don't know where to begin. This is my first year of season on, on 24, and, uh, and, and I just didn't know how to, how to move forward. But I, I forced myself to take little steps. And even if I brought in three pages after a week, it was something for everyone to go, that's good. Let's move on. Like, let's move on. We were able, we had enough time to to uh, to be able to just kind of you know chop away at it until it got through it. But. I also think it's important. Uh, you know, when I wrote, I wrote with a partner for the first half of my career, and having a partner is great because it's a silent indictment sitting across the table from you. <laughs> Why aren't we working? Um, uh, and uh, sometimes but I, not silent. Yeah, but but uh, you know, and you lean on each other, and you have somebody to bounce stuff off of. That's great. When I when I started writing by myself, I had no idea what my uh, what my discipline was. In other words, I didn't know what time of day I was good. I didn't know, you know? And I, it took me a long time to discover, like Strauss and I, when we were right together, we could write anywhere. We could write in a car, we could write in a, you know, in a, in a noisy football stadium, it didn't matter. I found that when I started writing on my own, I needed total sensory deprivation. So, uh, I, you know, so that, hence the shack behind the house. Horrid, there's no phone, there's no internet connection, uh, there's nothing else to do. Um, when I wrote The Will and Grace, I learned this when I was writing The Will and Grace script because my father-in-law had a boat in a slip in Marina Del Rey and I used to go out there and go below deck and write and there was absolutely nothing but just the sound of like, what is it, you know, the, the, the rope hitting the mast. I know nothing about sailing. Um, uh, and that's all there was. There was nothing else and so all I could do was write. So sensory deprivation. I also learned that anything I do before 11 a.m. is shit. <laughs> anything. So don't start till 11. Uh, it took me a long time to figure this out because if I start, I sit down, it's like I'm on a deadline. I've got to start at 9 o'clock. I'll just have two hours of self-loathing. That's all. <laughs> two hours of self-loathing, and then I'll be more beat up and more like, exhausted when I actually start writing the good stuff at about 11.45. So I was like, I started, you know, so it's learning, it's a, it's self-discovery in a lot of ways. And not, like, be, not beating yourself up. If yeah, you, for example, exactly. I can't, I can't write at night. I'm a total morning person. I, I like to be fresh. I don't even want to eat breakfast. I, it's much easier for me to focus. But then when you need to keep writing longer than that period of time, when you have to write into the night and your brain starts becoming fuzzy, you start hating yourself and telling yourself you're terrible. That's why you can't do any of this. But it's really you're just tired and it's late at night. So not beating yourself up is a yeah. good thing to do. Find your rhythms and where you work well. And yeah. Or sometimes you're just terrible. Yeah. Yes, quite often, actually. Three of you should hang it up. <laughs> I won't tell you which ones. Uh, you were nodding at the sensory deprivation. Is that how you work also? I was just nodding at all of it. I, I will try <laughs> everything. If anyone has suggestions, I'll take them. Um, I mean, I, I try, I've tried everything. And uh, it's funny, the stories about like when you work best. I definitely work best at night. 
really hard to be a functional human being when you write best at 2 a.m. So, again, being on a show is great because if I have a script due on a show, I just hole up somewhere for a week or two, however long, or two days, whatever time I'm given, I hole up. I will procrastinate up until the point that I can't procrastinate anymore. So if I have two weeks, maybe a week of that's procrastination, yeah. you know, and make myself miserable and I won't go out of the house and then I'll kick in and, you know, very relieved to hear it gets easier as you go along because, yeah, once I – and I know this. I know this is true that the beginning is going to – I'm going to want to write five pages and I'll get one page done. And But then somewhere towards the end, all of a sudden, I'm up all night and I've written – 10 pages and but every time I still hate myself and yeah <laughs> there's and, a theme here and you know when you're not on a show it's really as we've all said it's really hard I mean this last time I was trying to, to work on this movie and and I just was not it was such a challenge because it's adapting a book that I've never I've never done that before it's um it's based on a true story there's no plot in the book there's no it's just a rambling memoir and it's really challenging and, and it, I just was not doing it and my my neighbor who's a writer actually with a child said you know the only thing I can do is get up in the morning and just take him to school and just go and I get stuff done and I know I'm not a morning writer but I started doing that I started getting up at seven and working until like three or four and it was I know that I'm not working as well as I could be if I was working at 2 a.m., but I'm actually doing it as, a, as you know, instead of hating myself all day and then at mm. 7 o'clock at night just being like, well, I'm just going to go out to dinner with friends and not doing it. So I just constantly am ad- adapting and trying to figure out what works for me, and, um, but it's, it's awful. And, and, for me, <laughs> and for me, definitely starting is the hardest point. Like, I will literally, once I'm into stuff, I will not go to the bathroom until I'm about to die, just so that everyone knows, because if I get up, I have to start again. Mm. So I won't eat. I, I just, like, once I'm in it, which is probably why I like the night, because nothing's bothering you, nothing's... Um, going to have a revelation right here in front of all of you. <laughs> Solve my writing problems. But. Whereas I, I like going to, I'm one of those those LA people, and I, I'm sure many of you are too, I, I go to a coffee house and sit there like an idiot and drink coffee, but I like the feeling of it's almost like a gym, that everybody there, a lot of the coffee houses, they're not just drinking coffee, they're all writers sitting there, that you're seeing everybody else sweat it out and hate themselves right along with you. So it, it's easier to work that way for me. See, and I hate that. I feel like yeah. I'm on display. Like, yeah. I'm in my PJs, hold up in my house somewhere, don't talk to me, don't, you know. Is it silent? Do you put music on or anything? You know, with that, I go back and forth. I have certain music that I like to write to, um, so I sometimes, if you look at, like, my iTunes, there's the same albums that are played over and over. Sometimes I can't listen to anything. Um, and then the most embarrassing thing is when I was writing this pilot, I, growing up, I used to listen to Christian music. I was that kid and I downloaded some of that to like get me back in the mindset. So it's highly embarrassing that that is on my, and I don't ever write to it, but I did for the one script. So David, do you ever write anymore? Do I ever write anymore? (laughs) (laughs) What's, what's your, what's your process? Is it similar to these guys? Um, (laughs) Um, Is it short, the answer? No. <laughs> um, no, honestly, uh, I, I need to, uh, I need, I'm, I'm a morning, I'm a, I'm a morning writer. Um, I, I, I find all sorts of ways to procrastinate just like everyone else. I guess I'm, I, I guess I've just got the same story, except you, you all start at different times of the day, <laughs> you know, morning, 1145 <laughs> at night. So, um, I, I, I just, uh, I, I also have three kids at home, and I when I'm not, you have two. Yeah. 
And when I'm not uh, at an office, when I'm not working on a show, uh, it becomes a lot trickier to find that time to... Uh, to, to Or it's impossible, <laughs> uh, which is a better way of putting it, because um, that frees me from actually having to do anything. So it's impossible. You can't, you can't do it. It's, I, I will say, I, I don't know, if, uh, it, it is very hard in television. The biggest challenge that I'm facing that is new to me is I have two small children and trying to work on a staff um, where the hours are, are, are pretty brutal has been the hardest thing I've ever done, I think. Sure. Hmm. Uh, let's, let's talk about uh, working on that staff. And you have children, too, do you not? Yes. yes. I have one son, yes. yes. Very patient son. <laughs> I have no Very children quiet, and right? no excuses. Thus, but. Uh, let's talk about your staff, uh, Emily. Sure. Um, and uh, by way of talking about what it's like to work in a writer's room, uh, I think your, yours is probably a little atypical, although maybe it is a typical uh, sitcom situation. What I is the room like? I think it's a typical writer's room. Um, the one thing that is not typical is there are four women on the staff, which on many staffs there, are, there is one woman or no women. Um, especially and, in comedy. And especially in comedy, which is too bad. Uh, but it's a pretty typical group. We come in, we have a meeting in the morning where we sit and talk about what we'll be doing for the week. Um, we talk about lunch a lot and where we'll be ordering from. That takes up a good amount of time. We talk about coffee for a while. Um, the women talk about, you know, cramps and all the cliche things that we're not supposed to talk about. It's supposed um, to be great for the guys in the room. Yes, they love. Oh my God, the conversations. We have driven men from the room with our female. Uh, chatter. Um, we sit and we talk about the week and we talk about uh, the status of all the different episodes and who's breaking what and who's doing what and what we need to get done. Um, and then we usually break off into two rooms um, that are working on different episodes. Um, sometimes there's a punch-up room and a story room. Um, and then a writer goes off to do a draft. Um, we have been known to do something called a spit draft, which is where um, the the story has been already outlined and each writer takes a scene. That's when we get really in the weeds and we're really behind. We will sometimes do that, which is an interesting process, something I haven't actually done before um, because it's so, so many different voices and many cooks in the kitchen. Um, so that's been interesting. But it's a normal room. It's it's a lot of really funny people um, who, who are a little bit crazy um, coming up with crazy ideas and it, it's really fun. I feel very lucky to be in a room with really funny, creative people. Um, I do not feel as lucky when it's 3 a.m. or 8 a.m. Um, and we've been there the whole night. But So the, the process, it, it is a normal writer's room. Although on this show, uh, which is interesting, everyone from the staff writers on up, when it's their episode, they are on set and really producing their episode, which is not the norm. Um, often staff writers, uh, who are the first level writers to come on a show, the, the lower level writers, um, don't even get a script, much less the ability to be on the set and work with the director and the actors and and. That's unusual about community, but it's great because each in that way you have more ownership of the show um, creatively. So, and how big is the staff? How big is the staff? You know, it's only eight people. We have two non-writing producers, um, and we have Dan Harmon who runs the show, who also occasionally writes an episode. But really, it's it's a small staff. It's about eight people, which is unusual. I think staffs are getting smaller. It feels like. Um, it used to be that you know there'd be about ten or sometimes fourteen writers, and now it's just just eight. 
Uh, Jeff, what has your, been your experience in the room, especially going from, you know, how is the Friends room or the Will and Grace room different from, say, Desperate Housewives? Well, the Apparently. peculiar thing about Desperate Housewives is how similar it is to the way a half-hour comedy is run. Um, all the writers on the show, all the writers on the show, have a background in half-hour at this point. Um, and the process is this bizarre hybrid of the hour process and the half-hour process. Um, what you just described, the spit draft, every draft on Desperate Housewives is written in pieces. Um, nobody ever goes away and writes a draft. It doesn't ever happen. You're lucky if you get to go off and write a complete story. Because typically what happens is, the, uh, I, the analogy that I always think of is, you know how in Empire Strikes Back there's Cloud City? You know, These guys don't know. Yeah. But you know how there's like Cloud City and they're like, well, yeah. there's Cloud City. There's an upper level group of writers that I always refer to as Cloud City. There's like three or four of us that break the stories together. Um, and that's cards on a board and all done collaboratively. And then we bring in platoons of writers. We have 12 writers. Mm -hmm. We bring in platoons of writers and we say, okay, we're going to pitch you the story. You can check us on whether it makes sense. And if you like it, go off and write it. And then we'll bring it back in. We'll give them notes. Sometimes, if need be, we'll hand it off to somebody else. But it's constantly cycling through this central group of four people. Um, and the way that this developed was Mark Cherry had a background in half hours. And in order to sort of stay astride the whole process in the way that he needed to, uh, this was developed. Polishing is done in a room with a screen like this. And we all shout at it. And there's a writer's assistant in the corner who takes down everything we say. I mean, it's exactly like a half hour. Uh, it's very weird. Uh, Parenthood couldn't have been more different from that. Parenthood, you know, which Jason Kadams uh, created and runs, is much more a traditional hour show in that you're working much. There's there is room work to be done in terms of development of stories, but beyond once once you are assigned a story, you are basically riding shotgun on that whole thing. You're working directly with the showrunner, crafting the story, getting notes really only from him, uh, and then once it's done, he will either take a pass at it or give somebody else a chance of taking a pass at it. But that's a mu it's a much more traditional hour process. Um, anyway, I think that answers your question. That does. What about you, David? Uh, looking at... Yes, I'm writing. I'm writing now. <laughs> right now? <laughs> right at this moment, I'm writing. It's very good. Uh, looking at primarily the hours that you've worked on, how is the Buffy room different from the 24 room, different from the Lost room? <laughs> well, um, it's interesting. As Jeff is describing... Um, Desperate Housewives, I mean, as he started to describe it, uh, the Buffy room was very much a half-hour comedy room. It was very, very funny people, some of which Jeff knows from sitcom worlds like Jane Espenson and, and uh, Doug Petrie. And, uh, it was just the funny... And Joss, Joss himself came out of sitcoms. Um, and uh, it, we broke stories as a group. We didn't sit around a table. We sat very much in a lounge sort of scenario. Um, it was a very. It was. Well, we had tea, tea delivered to us. It was a very. It was. It was very English countryside, you know. And it was very civilized. Um, but it was remarkable. What was wonderful about it was it was um, just fun and funny people. Um, just spitballing ideas and entertaining each other and going off on wild tangents. And somehow we came up with, a, with very clever stuff. It didn't get to the point where we were writing scripts. We were able to go off. That's the part where we differ was uh, when it came time for a story, somebody had an idea and, and, and we'd break it as a group and then someone would go off, write the outline, get notes, and that person would go off and write the script. Um, and that's that's the more traditional, I guess, that's... Yeah. Similar to more parenthood, um, and uh, 
that was a that was the perfect way of doing a show as far as I, I was concerned. I tried to bring it as when I came into Lost and I was the number two on Lost after J, uh, JJ and Damon um, initially before Carlton came in around episode 10 of the first season. Um, at that point, but I tried to help shape the room of that show much like the Buffy. I tried to... Uh, to take the lessons I learned from working with Joss and, and, and apply it there. Um, unfortunately, it didn't stick eventually because, you know, I was trying to recreate something that was perfect that developed over some years, and it didn't quite stick there. Uh, 24 was, as I indicated, kind of bizarre uh, in that the rooms were just whims of, hey, what do, you know, this, these bizarre ideas that... They just went, you know, go, all right, go figure it out. Go go figure it out and come back and uh, let's see what you got. And uh, that was much more, you know, sink or swim. That was that was being thrown into the pool and, uh, you know. I have to just follow up. I don't, I've never seen 24. I don't know anything about it. But doesn't it have an arc, an arc over the season? It does. It has, a, it has a through line throughout, but it's one that's not preconceived. They, they attempted to do that in the earlier years before I was there. They attempted to figure out um, an entire season, the the plot, and they found the first 24 episodes suddenly got compressed into six. They felt like it was they were burning up story faster than they can write it. So by the time I got on there, we we would figure out the first four episodes, mm. and then it was just well, let's see where it happens. So let's see where it wait, goes. You didn't, you didn't even know where the finale. What the, what Did finale not know. Was. We, we generally what happened was the finale. We'd come up with a finale probably around episode 10, 9 or 10, go, nice. all right, now I see what the characters are and the bad guys and what's popping. All right, now we'll fit, you know, maybe this. And, and then we were able to go, all right. And sometimes we'd veer away from it, but generally we had a better sense of where it was going. At Mutant Enemy on the Buffy and Angel thing, we knew what we were, we, we knew the ending of the season before we began. And on Lost, um, <laughs> There was a Bible. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so um, uh, that was something that was interesting in that they, they did not want anyone to know that we were, we were just trying to create interesting, an interesting travel road to take our characters. It was like, no, we had to insist to everyone that we figured the whole, we know everything that's going on here. And in 24... They didn't care. We just, every time we had an interview, it was like, we don't know. We don't know where we're going. It's like, is Jack's father coming back? I don't know. Maybe. We'll see. You know, is, you know, is Chloe going to die? Possibly. You know, we just didn't know. And, and we'd, we'd, you know, we'd figure it out as we go. Uh, Catherine, same question, and then we'll uh, turn it over to the crowd. But you've worked on, from Supernatural to Mad Men, they have to be somewhat different rooms. Yeah, they were really different. My mind is still blown by the 24th thing. Like, I would think that would be one of the most structure-heavy shows. Um, but it just goes to show that until you're in a room, I mean, Supernatural didn't have a room for the most part. Um, it didn't start out that way. The creator, it was his first show. And um, and honestly, part of why I ended up getting a job there was by the end of the, like, first 13 I think almost everyone had been had left or been let go um it, there was just a couple people that remained and so literally um this guy named John Scheiben who's awesome and I knew from X-Files was the co-EP and he was sort of steering the boat and it was literally like you can sit alone in a room and figure this out or you can let her come in with you and I'm really lucky that he let me come in and he let me participate and and we I mean 
sounds weird to say it, but I mean, I helped break a lot of that first season and just by default. And, and luckily, you know, a lot of people in this business have really big egos and, and wouldn't be okay with someone who was an assistant coming in and, you know, in our, but our relationship evolved over time and, and we worked together. And then the next season when I became a full-fledged writer and that show talk about small staff had like I think second season was like four of us like the creator and four of us and literally you came together for a few days at the beginning you talked about the season for like a day and then you pitched stuff and then you all got an episode and you all went off and you sat alone in your office and you figured it out um and that is not my favorite way of working um but I learned a ton I mean I I learned a lot about structure from doing that because you had to and sometimes I'd have episodes where literally it would I'd pitch it to them for an afternoon and they'd go great go write that um and you had to of course write an outline and stuff um sometimes it would be like you'd go in the room and you'd start fresh and maybe one other person would get pulled in and it would take you know a, a week to do but um that place was a factory I mean there were writers on that show that wrote five episodes a season just finish one turn. You don't produce. You don't do anything else. You just finish and you go the next. Mad Men was like night and day. I mean, Mad Men was very room heavy. It was, uh, you know, at the beginning probably like 10 hours a day stretched in the end. You got to produce your episodes, which was, I mean, it, that just almost never happens anymore because nothing's shot here. So to get to be like go downstairs and, and be on set, you know, I'd go on set almost every day just because they, they're amazing. They are actually like great act not I mean great actors in the sense that they're great people and it was fun to be on that set and uh, so I got to produce two episodes I you know I didn't you didn't get to be in editing there but that we broke stories together in that room we did like an a b and a c story we had a writer's assistant who was supposed to sort of write write that up like a beat sheet and then so we'd have an a story a b story and a c story and then we literally um I love this method it was strange to learn it but we literally cut the the stri- we'd cut out every beat, so you just have all these strips of paper, and then we'd get around a table, and we'd just start moving them around. And uh, it's great, actually. And I was actually pretty, you know, it took me a while to get the hang of it, but because I'd been so used to structuring stuff and, on my own, we'd sort of, you'd have different people who'd come through and do a, a different pass. And usually if someone would do an initial pass, I could go in and make it work. Or sometimes when everyone got stuck and would just be fighting over something, I'd just sort of sneak up and move the pieces mm-hmm. around. And, and and then the other thing on Mad Men is then you go off and you write a draft, and then you come back, and uh, your draft is thrown out, and you re-break everything. And I wrote episode two, the season that I started on there, and so I, I wrote this draft, and I was, I'm literally like watching episodes and crying, as Jeff can relate. Like, <laughs> I can't do this. And I write the draft, and I come back in, and he doesn't talk to me and, and literally just goes in and says, okay, there's nothing about this works. We have to start over. And I was like, I'm getting fired. That's it. You know, and every writer in that room was like, it's okay. We're going to do this with every single episode. But until you – when you're episode two and the first one was written by him, so you didn't do that, <laughs> um, it, it was a rough couple of days. But, um, but that's what you do. And then you either get to go back and write another draft if there's time. Or he takes it and writes a draft. But every single episode that happens to. Um, and that's just his process. You know, it's just how it works. And, and there's a lot of rebreaking on that show. And then he's a great writer. I mean, he'll take, he'll take stuff where you're like, I don't think we figured that out yet. And then he'll write the scene and you're like, well, look at that. You know, he can, he can kind of write around when structure isn't always the best. I mean, a lot of times that show is very well structured. But, li- I mean, I, if you guys watch it, it's like there's scenes where nothing happens and you're you're completely um, yeah and then the last room I was in was was you're giving me like flashbacks talking about your long hours because it was like a lot of like 15 17 hour days a lot of weekends 
I mean, I guess I was, I would come to life around 2 a.m., which I guess makes sense because that's when I, hmm. I, but it was like literally how do I get us out of here? Um, and we, there's this word that I hate, uh, gangbang, where you all write the scripts together. Spit draft. <coughs> we say spit draft, but, <laughs> but gangbang is the way to say gangbang. You gangbang them. And we did that with every single piece of material that came out of that show, um, every outline, every script. Um, so that was interesting. What was your Peggy story? You said the one thing that survived was your Peggy story. It was, um, it was just, it was in a, that, that, uh, the second episode of that season where um, Bye Bye Birdie, they, they screen Bye Bye Birdie, and she's kind of watching it and realizing why are all these men responding this way and, and kind of realizing she's not that kind of woman. <laughs> so she makes the decision and to, to sort of go out to a bar and pick up a guy and, and sort of mm. prove that she can be that person, which, of course, she never really can be, but... So that was that was just it. Just was a small story that, that I that actually liked. That was, a, that was a great story. Yeah. Just a quick follow up, uh, David, because you didn't uh, quite touch on this. But on Buffy Sorry. and Angel, well, on Buffy and Angel, uh, did the writers produce their episodes as well? Yes, very much so. Uh, I mean, Joss was very. Uh, he was very. He wanted us uh, very involved. I mean, it became like a repertory company. I mean, I, I got to, I got to direct. I got to act. I got to produce. I got to edit. I. Uh, everything and he he encouraged that from his entire staff. I mean, the thing is, he had to go through a couple of seasons until he found the right grouping of people. But once we were in place, um, he was happy to have us just you know just produce everything, and it was it was a unique experience. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we have time for a few questions. Uh, I see someone way in the back. Here's how it's going to go. Uh, there are four extremely talented people up here. Um, don't ask a question just about Lost. <laughs> uh, we want questions that are really about, as I said at the beginning, writing television, the process of writing television, and the business of writing television. That's why we're here. Um, you will ask the question. I will repeat it so it will be recorded for the podcast, which may someday come out. Um, and uh, then these guys will answer it. So really, I saw someone right in the back who went right up. Yes, yeah, stand up and yell. The question is about uh, what is the process of quitting? What happens to your material? Uh, do you hand it off? Well, nothing's left over at the end of a season. Uh, it's, I mean, if there's a wisp of an idea that you talked about during your tenure that wasn't used, you walk away from it. I can't recall whether that ever happened to me. Uh, you, uh, to be honest, I mean, Emily kind of alluded to this. You don't get too proprietary about your ideas. There may be a joke you particularly love that you treasure. You can't get proprietary about those either. Yeah. That's so, the first thing to go is the joke that you love. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because there, uh, I just, I, I've never given much thought to that. Uh, a writer's assistant keeps a log of everything we talk about. I'm sure the stuff exists somewhere, but I, I couldn't tell you I, what I left behind on Parenthood after I left that show. I, I actually worked on a show where I developed a storyline and I left, and they did use that story later. And I thought about it and I kind of grumbled about it. But if it was developed kind of there with everybody for that show, then they can keep it. Mm. I, I had that experience too. And yeah, it was the same. I mean, there's a little part of you where. You're like oh, that was directly sort of something, but you're, you're there. You're there to serve the show. You're there to serve the showrunner and the show. And when you're in that room and 
you're throwing out stuff. I mean, even super, well, it was on Supernatural, and it was it's a little different because we were coming up with specific pitches. And but at the end of the day, you know, they gave me four great years of working there, and we all did each other's stories sometimes. And you know, I I just tried to look at it as being flattered, where it was like, oh, you know, that they still were able to use some stuff that I'd pitched a few years ago. So it seems like it's often not worth. The effort, also. Like, not worth the trouble. Nobody wants to be the troublemaker and going back and yelling at the show you used to work at. Hmm. Well, no, no, no. <laughs> no, I mean, I, it, I, I worked there for them. It was his idea. You know, it, it just, I, I, like I said, I mean, I had this moment of being like, that was mine. And then you're like, hey, okay, that's cool. Obviously, I was there for long enough that what I'm contributing still in some small... Like, it, it does make me feel good that, like, in some small way. Because, like Jeff said, you, you're you there and, and you don't hold on to anything. It just belongs to everyone and the show's going to... I think we probably all have a moment where you wish I walk away from the show and it's going to fall apart, you know? And it doesn't. It, 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 and even if it does, it doesn't really have anything to do with your walking away. So, you know... It, I think one of, one of the main things to know if you work in television and, and you think you're a wonderfully brilliant, talented person, um, you're in a room with other people, and yes, you may have the, the foundation of an idea, and someone builds on it, and someone builds on that. So it started with you, but then it goes off in another direction, but you still feel like you have ownership of it because it started with you, or you're the person who, who built on it, so you feel like it's your idea. So you just kind of have to give all that up, and that's really hard, and that's why when you write on your own, you feel in, a little more empowered. It is more frightening, but you feel a little more empowered because you are in control of what stays and what goes, and it's all you, whether it sinks or, or, or swims. Um, and when you are on a TV writing staff, you are part of a bigger thing, and, and you have to get used to that. It takes some getting used to. Sure. Yes, right here. Um, what's the craziest note, either from a studio network or showrunner, that you've received, and how did you respond to it, either verbally or in your writing? The question is about the craziest note that you've gotten from a exec, a showrunner, a network, whatever it is, uh, and how did you respond to it? They're all so crazy. <laughs> I can't think of any. We've gotten things like, don't do that episode. That's not funny. <laughs> Just ridiculous. And then we didn't listen and went on and did it, and it was a great episode. But we've gotten a lot of sort of general things like, please stop, and <laughs> things like that. On, on community in particular, we get those a lot. Please don't do that. And Can you guys think of anything else? No. When you say that, the only thing I can think of are, are stupid standards notes. I mean, I've been fortunate enough to work on uh, shows that reach a level of success where you become kind of note-proof in a way. I remember early on on Will and Grace, we had a gag where like Karen would take a pill and she'd stir her martini with it and then she'd knock back the pill and she'd drink the martini. They're like, you can't do that. You can't show a character mixing drugs and alcohol like that. We need to see the prescription bottle on the table. We, you know, it's, and it's like over time, as we became more successful, those notes fell away. Um, there was a lot. <laughs> I was the primary proponent of a lot of vaguely anti-Semitic humor on Will and Grace um, because I felt we should be an equal opportunity haters. You know, um, we, Since we make fun of gays and Christians, we should make fun of ourselves as well. Um, and so they were very uncomfortable with jokes about, oh, my God, we had a joke which, uh, where Karen referred to her lawyers as bagel nose and gefiltamen. Um, LAUGHTER 
Uh, and they were like, you can't say that. You can't have Karen say that. You know? So we would get no But I mean, that's somebody doing their job, somebody looking out for you know, the parents' television council. So I don't fault them. But no, I mean, bizarrely stupid network notes, I have encountered remarkably few. Yeah. Uh, the, one, the, 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 one, the, the only one that, I mean the one that springs to mind at the moment was on Lost uh, there's an episode where the character um, um, what's his name Saeed uh, is being <laughs> is being tortured by the uh, French woman and um, and uh, giving up the st- and she's giving up the story of how she got there and she was there with a research team and he Saeed he asks her, like, what were you, what were you researching, or what were you studying, or what were their expertise? And she said, time. And the network said, uh, you can't say that. Uh, that's veering into science fiction. Um, and I, and at this point, we'd had a, a paraplegic get up and walk. We had a, sm- a monster that we had not seen. Great. And they're going, no, 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 no. The time thing, it's too science fiction. The audience won't go for that. So, so we had to pull back. They were right. They were right. Uh, could we have time for a couple more questions. Who else? Yes, right here. question is about when you're working on your own material, how long does it take? What year is this? <laughs> it depends on what it is. If it's something I really love, I do it quickly. If it's something that's more of a challenge and there's more work involved in thinking or research, then I just go and have coffee. <laughs> and it takes a long time. How long is a long time? Months? Never. I just don't... <laughs> I think at least three months. I mean, like, if it's a feature script, let's say, a spec, I mean, or a, an original feature, it should probably take three months to, to get a draft out. You know, figuring you're writing a couple of pages a day. Um, it's a good thing to do if you think about w- what a network would actually ask of you. If you're writing a television pilot, maybe you sell it in, in August and then you're asked to turn in a draft by November or another draft by January. I mean, following that pattern and seeing if you can do it is a good way to find out if you would be able to do it professionally, just sort of forcing yourself to stick to those guidelines. Yeah, along those lines, I remember when I was writing specs, I sort of you know, I was slower than I thought I should be, and I, I literally um, was writing one spec. Once I felt like I'd gotten the hang of r- actually writing it down, and I sort of said, can I write this in, I'd probably give myself two weeks, which is generous. You're not going to get that on all shows. And I was able to do it. And it, but, it but prior to that, I wrote a lot slower. So that's another thing. If you're, if you're worried about that, you, like, once you get, com- I mean, don't write your first spec and say, I'm going to write it in two weeks. But, you know, once you get more comfortable, you can set yourself goals or, you know, I spend a ton of time on the research and the avoiding. And then once I actually write, it's I'll sort of – again, you're, we're used to working in TV, so you lock yourself in. That's what I tend to do. But I can research and break story for a very long time. I don't write anything unless it's due. I mean, I need to know that somewhere someone is drumming their fingers on the table going, where is that guy? Where is the script? Um, and I'm really – in spite of all the hair tearing and the crying, I'm very fast. Uh, I do write really, really quickly, and I wouldn't want to tell you how quickly because it would create re- unrealistic expectations for your own work. 
Uh, yeah, over here. <laughs> when you're given the opportunity to direct an episode, I guess my question is, what's the experience of being a first-time director? It's like, okay, I'm a staff writer, you've been asked to direct. How does the set feel to you and react to you? Like, do you already know the people, like all the grips and all that? The question's about the experience of being a first-time director, which is what a whole other panel. Go ahead, do, do yours. Do, go ahead. What was the first <laughs> one you did? Uh, the first one I did was a Buffy episode, and at that point I'd been on the show as a writer, uh, co co I think it was a co-exec at that point, um, or supervisor, I'm not sure, but I'd been on for a few years. So I knew the cast very well, I, I um, much like Catherine's describing what she was doing Supernatural, our, Buffy was done in a compound in Santa Monica. Our sets were right there. They were right outside our offices. We were there all the time down there working with the directors, working. So that was a very wonderful experience uh, for me to to get to know everybody on the crew, and they all knew me. So by the time I had the opportunity to direct, um, I wasn't walking into a you know a cold set where, where people wasn't, weren't sure whether to trust me. It was a script I'd written, um, so that always helps. I mean, the, they're always going to defer to the writer. And um, it, it was a very it was a very good experience. The difference is when I went to direct an Angel, Angel was shot at Paramount, which you know we were, our offices for writing it were in Santa Monica. I hadn't spent any time on the set at Paramount, so that was a very different experience. Where I was walking onto a set where most of the people I didn't know the names of most of the people there. They knew who I I was, but they didn't know exactly. So it was it was a little bit trickier. But the fact of the matter is. That was a climate where everybody pulled together. Everybody really wanted to support you and uh, and jumped in. David Boranis was a prince to me um, when I had trouble setting up one shot. And he's become a really terrific director himself in his own right. Um, you know, there were, there, were, there was just people there all pulling for you, even though this, you know, I was new to it. Um, so I, I had a very fortunate experience doing that. When I was asked to, I was asked to direct an episode of Lost, the first season. And I did not, because it was shot in Hawaii, and I, I'd been there to produce one of my episodes, Walkabout, but I, I didn't really know the crew there. And I really felt, I felt intimidated to the idea of trying to direct a Lost that year because I didn't, the, I, the actors I hadn't bonded with because they're 3,000 miles away. And uh, I said, look, I'll do it next year. I'll do it in the second season. And I didn't come back the second season, so... <laughs> That was the show that was not to be. I, I made my directing debut on Housewives uh, last fall. Um, and uh, it's interesting because I had been on the show seasons three, four, and five, but because my primary utility to the television series was being in the writer's room, I think I had spent a total of 45 minutes on set uh, in those three years. So I think there's a very good chance, and I may even have one particular experience to back this up, that Terry Hatcher didn't know who I was. Um, um, <laughs> But I did in the uh, in the months leading up to doing the episode. I spent a lot of time on set. I learned every crew member's name. I was very. Uh, I'm here to learn, and uh, and I think people really appreciated that. Obviously, you know, I was a known quantity to the network and the studio and the producers. But uh, a lot of the people didn't know me, so I I came in with a good tailwind because I had the endorsement of. Uh, of the production, but I had to do a little more of what you described on Angel, and then I had to kind of like make friends with everybody. Um, I will say that the experience uh, itself, after one day of just abject terror, 
um, was remarkably fun. And uh, everyone was incredibly supportive, really wanted me to succeed. I had the benefit of a fantastic DP uh, checking my shots and also one of our in-house executive producer directors, David Grossman, uh, who walked, you know, who was like alongside me all the way, you know, where he would say, you know, there's one more piece of coverage you might want to grab here. Just really simple, elemental things where he helped me along. But I also, I did write the episode to the extent that one person ever writes an episode of Desperate Housewives. Um, and I did find the actors really responded to having the writer on the set. So if they wanted a quick line change or if they wanted clarification of what the intention of a particular scene was or even what the intention of a scene was beyond the scene, like where are we going with this in series, I think I as a director was able to answer that in a way that director of the week wasn't always. So I could say, you know, what's going to happen next week is you two are going to bop, bop, bop. And so that was great. And uh, I got, particularly from the four women, uh, a lot of validation for being able to be very informed about choices for characters and storylines. So it was a great experience, and I would relish the opportunity to do it again. They were great to me. I, I just have one thing to add, because as memory is flooding in, um, everyone was very supportive of me when I did the first Buffy, um, except for one person. <laughs> Um, and it came to a head I've never told this story before but it came to a head where I was on the set um, there was a little bit of tension and um, somebody said uh, they were setting up a shot for me and they said Dave you need to come here and look at this come here and look at the setup and I went "Uh, okay and I'm moving through the set and I came to a door and I said can I come through this door and somebody yelled yeah and I came to the door, and on the other side was Sarah Michelle Geller leaning against the door, and I opened it maybe this much, and she fell so hard against the oh. floor. She just completely collapsed like I had burst through the door. And, um, and I was like, oh, my God, Sarah, are you okay? And uh, so I'm fine, I'm fine. She departed for her trailer, and I didn't see her again for the rest of the day. Oh. Um, now, I'm only telling this story because, well, I don't work with her anymore. Um, <laughs> but uh, the fact of the matter is, um, you know, you have to sort of, you have to sort of, when, when it's somebody's show, and Sarah felt it was her set, you have to play a little bit. There is some politics involved. There is something, there is some cajoling to do. And she wound up being very, very wonderful and very supportive, ultimately. But I, I just always wanted to tell that story because <laughs> because I I completely had a breakdown at this point. I went, well, that's it. I'm never I, my career's over. I just not you know, and I, I'm 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 going into the executive producer's uh, David Greenwald's office, and I'm telling him this is what happened, and he's laughing and laughing <laughs> and laughing, and uh, um, I, I I live to direct again. Mm. Well, thank you, guys. Uh, we're, we're unfortunately all out of time, uh, and I'm sorry I kept you all so late. Um, we just need to thank 826LA. Great. Give them a hand. And throw some money in their jar on the way out. Uh, thanks to Barry, who made it sound great, and Ed from uh, Nerdist here. Thanks, of course, to Chris Hardwick and Nerdist Industries at Meltdown. Thanks to my wonderful panelists, Jeff Greenstein, Emily Cutler, David Fury, and Catherine Humphreys. My name is Ben Blacker, and we'll see you next week, I hope.